This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show, broadcasting from the west side of Oahu. What should Christians do in a plague? Should we drink coffee, then wine, then binge watch Netflix? Repeat. Should we fight for our civil rights? Should we live lives in solidarity with the vulnerable? Or can we just do all the above? I think I've been doing a little bit of all the above. To jo- joining me today to talk about this is Maggie Gallagher from the Benedict the 16th Institute. You know who Maggie Gallagher is. She's a writer. Uh, she's authored many books. She's been for decades defending the free institutions of civil society. And she joins me today to answer the question, what do Christians do in a plague? This episode has been brought to you by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. If you make a $20 donation or more to Movie to Movement today, you get a free copy of my book, The Race to Save Our Century. Let's get on with the show. It's Maggie Gallagher. What do Christians do in a plague? Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Maggie Gallagher. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Jason Jones. Here, live from Washington, D.C., it's Maggie Gallagher. I love that. I love it. You get it. You get the campiness of the intro to just kind of give (laughs) warm people's hearts in the midst of this Corona depression. Coffee, booze, coffee, booze, repeat, coffee. That's how I've, have you been drinking a lot in a coffee and booze? Uh, I drink a lot of coffee and I continue to do so, but I've been uh, trying to stay off the booze because I think it probably wouldn't be good for me, but. That's wise. I just see that who, of all things, the World Health Organization just urged European countries to ban booze. I, I I think that's a great idea. I think we should ban booze and Netflix, and that's a great way to get a rebellion. I, I think you can take away the First Amendment. You can shut our churches, but if they close the liquor stores and if our streaming video services cease to work, there will be anarchy in the streets is my prediction. So I think they should keep those liquor stores open and allow people to binge watch and binge drink, and we'll be good. Well, in California, they sell booze in grocery stores, so that wouldn't do it. Well, and on that did note, you, know you I, I didn't know. Well, they sell booze in grocery stores in Hawaii. Do they not sell booze in grocery stores everywhere? They sell a lot here. They, they just sell wine. They still have state-run liquor stores. So that's no. in Virginia. I don't, and, and I think in Oregon, too, last time I was there. So very. Yeah, I love, like, in Hawaii now, they have like wine bars in the malls. They have wine bars in the grocery stores. We were getting so fancy, but now it's we've, we've, we've now we have bread lines. So Maggie, you wrote an article. First of all, I admire you. You're a hero of mine, and um, you wrote an article that I disagree with. Maybe, maybe I don't. 
but I thought you, I, I, I liked how you presented it, present it, your thesis. And so I thought you'd be the perfect person to have this discussion with you. You wrote an article that was, that got a lot of circulation and uh, a lot of people agreed with it and others did not. Um, what do Christians do in a plague? Earlier, I suggested we binge drink and drink, <laughs> <laughs> we drink coffee and stream Netflix. Yeah, that, that would be the classic path to sainthood in the Catholic Church, I think. No, when I read this article, I go, oh, she's going to confirm my bias and say we should binge drink and, uh, you know, <laughs> watch old episodes of Magnum. Okay, I'm, I've been doing that already, Maggie. I'm ahead of you. No, but... but <clears throat> But what you wrote that really kind of was the tagline, the pull quote that people were responding to, the sort of, and I don't, you, know, you probably would argue it's not the line of gesture of your point, but was that now is not the time for conservatives to rebel or to... Oh, well, by the way, I, it's not a piece about conservatives, it's about Christians. Christians, so, I'm sorry. It's Now it's not a yeah. time for Christians to rebel. Um, and it's... Uh, what should we be doing? So, well, I, I think what I said. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, and my only my disagreement with what that is, I don't think the people, the demos, the sovereign citizens are rebelling. I think the governors across this country and our mayors are really rebellious, and they know they are rebellious, and they know they're breaking the law because they constantly say, "Well, then sue me." And I think people, <laughs> when people say, "Well, sue me." They, you know, Cuomo literally said, um, I'm coming for your ventilators. And if you think it's against the law, well, then sue me and we'll settle this later. But I'm getting your ventilators now. And that really concerned me because that signaled this guy has no respect for the rule of law. Ironically, he's now wanting to sue Trump because he thinks the Trump is stepping on his authority. He can trample on the, the rights of private citizens. But how dare President Trump encroach upon what he thinks is, are his privileges as governor of New York? So that's that was my disagreement with you. Where's the rebellion coming from? Is it coming from the people who are standing up for the Bill of Rights, or is it coming from governors who, in their in their thoughtlessness and fear because of COVID nineteen, aren't even looking at the Constitution federally or their state constitution as a speed bump to their will? I, I don't think I'm even thinking about that question that you're thinking about, which I do think is. You know the way a lot of conservatives are processing this, uh, and so just just this is why the debate's going to be a bit sideways. And it's probably true that I am less of a coronavirus skeptic than you are, and that colors how people react. But I started to get concerned, and I don't know what's happening on your Facebook page, but the number of people who think just the early first days of uh, worldwide pandemic are the time to start um, what, this is going to sound unfair to a lot of people, but it just seems to like raise, particularly Christians who are raising the level of their criticism around the bishop. And in a kind of just, in the, you know, I had a conversation with one woman who was telling me that she thinks the bishop should be sacrificing like St. Charles for a male. And I'm like, uh, what? Like, 
and and she doesn't think that she should have to make any sacrifices, right? She's very big on other people making sacrifices to meet her spiritual needs. And I, it's, it's probably not fair. It's just, it is a, a an opinion that is, I would say, a distinct minority in my circles. And I felt it so strongly. I had such a strong reaction to the idea that by uh, accepting civil authorities, um, public health policies, we are giving into, say, the or demonstrating that we don't really have faith and that we think the life of the body is everything. And so I started researching. I mean, I started researching St. Charles Borromeo, but also perhaps more relevantly, what do churches do in the Spanish flu? Because, you know, everyone's talking like this is completely unprecedented. And it is in our lifetime, because, but because we got antibiotics. So for 100 years, we didn't have to worry about people infecting each other and dying on the streets or in the hospitals. But it is the case that during the Spanish flu of 1918, take, for example, in Philadelphia, the city ordered the churches closed along with everything else um, or most other things. And uh, the Archbishop of Philadelphia shut down all the churches. And then what did he do? He turned over church properties and turned them into hospitals. And then he asked every non-cloistered nun and uh uh, and many of the priests to serve in the sick and the poor in these new hospitals. And also they, you know, there's this incredible account of the sisters going into the slums and finding families sick and starving in bed and cleaning and caring for them. And this was a, a flu maybe of a similar rate of deadliness, but it was in fact scarier because the, there wasn't a long latency time and people just like were waiting for the bus stop and then they died as you're like going to catch the bus and there's a dead person next to you. So I, I, and that was true all over the country. There's a scholar who put together headlines. Uh, he's a, an evangelical scholar, I think at Bethel College in Minnesota. And it all, it was not true in every city uh, because the city authorities didn't all issue these orders, but it, it, it is the way the church in modern times responded to an epidemic. Now, I do think we're entering a new period, I, and, and my initial reaction was, we're in the first few weeks. Let's just buy some time. Let's figure it out. Let's find out how deadly the virus is. Let's develop new treatments. Let's get more data. Let's, uh, you know, have time to develop a plan for opening the economy. And, and what we were being asked to do is fast from the weekly Eucharist. Um, those of your listeners who are Catholics like me will understand that that is a big deal. But it's also true we're kind of spoiled. You know, weekly communion is a great privilege that we've had in this country for years and years and years and years. But many Christians and many Catholics have to do without it for a period of time. And if the civil authorities are trying to hurt churches, and there are places where it looks like that, that's what they're doing, and they're punishing responsible behavior like drive, you know, like services and parking lots with people in cars. Uh, if, if they're showing special animus towards religion, that's one thing. But I think by and large, civil health authorities, whose job it is to protect the public health, are trying to protect the public health. And I've seen too many clusters where religious people got together in good faith. And uh, a few weeks later, a lot of people are dead. 
and a small town, whole medical system is uh, over overwhelmed. So I think we now know a lot more, and I think as we move into the phase of opening up again, whether it's in uh, a few weeks or a month, but I expect there's going to be some movement in that time frame, maybe two months at the outside. We, you know, we are right to insist that we are not specially disadvantaged because, you know, elites don't like us. But where we see that it's an honest attempt to try to protect the health in a situation of limited information, let me remind you, we didn't really know, and now we know a lot more, but we didn't know Italy, so we know it could get pretty bad if we just did nothing. Well, Maggie, I can tell you... I'm one of those yeah. people that was very angry with our bishops. And I wasn't upset that I, you know, wasn't going to be able to go to mass with my family. What really frustrated me was the idea of Catholics, elderly Catholics alone, dying, not being able to receive last rites or, conf- or confession. And, yep. the, yeah. and I thought we could be creative. You know, I wrote uh, my bishop with an idea I never heard back that we, we could um, have young, healthy priests just to give last rites, and they could be quarantined, and they could be in mop gear, full-level mop gear, whatever. They could have their own. We can, yeah. get a, we can get a trailer and put it in the back of, you know, um, the hospital parking lot, and Father can stay there, and that would be sacrificial, and that would be, you know, not a pleasant experience for the priest. But just the idea that there would be, I think there could be creative ways to get last rites to every Catholic. We received a, 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 the, what really, and I, and I really admire and love our bishop. And I think the Diocese of Honolulu is blessed to have Bishop Larry. And I think a lot of this is just obedience on our bishop's part to above. But well, I, I think ahead. there's creative ways um, that we could meet the needs, especially of our terminally ill, our elderly, and our sick. And there would be some risk. Oh, my original point was what I got so upset at the letter from my bishop is it actually referenced St. Marianne and St. Damien as examples of responsibility. Well, they lived their lives around Mm -hmm. lepers, and St. Damien got leprosy. I just thought that was a very bad example. Young, fit... I'm sorry? Oh, Yeah, that's really strange because... (laughs) That's an example of heroically going and serving, yes. you know, people people who are sick and risking your own life doing so. Um, and uh, it, and it goes, to, you know, one point it, it does go to is that serving, serving, and I know we agree on this, that the basic attitude and response of a Christian and what one hundreds of thousands of converts to Christ for saints by St. Charles Borromeo and by many others through the ages, is an attitude of a sacrificial willingness to suffer and to give to others in need. And I'm not particularly good at this myself, but I guess I, when, when people appear to me to be complaining about themselves, in, it's very human, everyone's very anxious and distressed, and they don't know where this is going. But I just, saw too much of what sounded like that to me, and also kind of ramping up the problems by projecting them indefinitely into the future. Whereas, in fact, the suspension of civil liberties that typically took place during pandemics were 
rapidly restored when the pandemic was over in the past because the people can see, right, whether or not it's real or not and if you're misusing your power. So, uh, but I wanted to tell you too, I've been, so first I tried to get a response to Rusty Reno's piece on the minion of death into first things. And he didn't like my response. He's since published another dissenting piece to his credit, which is more theological than my writing is. And so maybe a better fit for first things. But I, he, he, I pitched to him the idea that one of the problems, one of the reasons we feel bad about our bishops is we don't see any visible Catholic response. And part of that is not that there isn't one. It's just that the media isn't that interested. So we need to, you know, give examples of creative responses and of serving and sacrificing. And your priest corps, it turns out that the Archdiocese of Chicago, of all places, has done exactly that. They've created a corps of young priests to give last rites. Giving last rites to the dying, I would say, though, you have to remember, it's going to require the cooperation of the community and the civil authorities, which is why those people, and I'm not saying it you, who, who appeared to respond with a spirit of rebellion or a standing on my rights approach, I believe might endanger souls. Because if you, you know, these, there's a few, not very many, I think most uh, pastors and priests are, are behaving quite responsibly. Um, but there's always a few, you know, outliers. There is a, there was a priest, there was a, a, a minister in Virginia who announced that he was going to keep holding services no matter what the governor said. And, you know, three weeks later, he was dead of coronavirus. And I don't know how many of his congregation were infected or how many other people that, because we're not an island, right? We can't just say, I'm willing to risk my own life for Christ in order to get communion. That's fine. Right? I mean, that's, that would be noble risking your life. But then, you're, you know, your, your garbage man is going to come and touch the same garbage can you touched, right? And you're postman is going to deliver you mail and there's those poor grocery clerks who i really feel well, for. Yeah, you know the glo- the grocery clerks the uber eats drivers the amazon employees and, and maggie and i and i and i agree we I, we don't really disagree i don't think on much of anything we want to be thoughtful we want to be responsible but i think the governors in many cases have kind of forced us into a two-front war you know when your mayor like de blasio says if you open your church, we're going to close it forever. Then that takes people like me who would have thought, you know what? Listen to the medical professionals, do the responsible thing, follow the suggestion of the mayor and the medical community and close your church. And if communities, if those rare communities are not going to close their churches, that's their right to do so. And in fact, if you force them to do it, they're going to meet underground in someone's house anyway it's going to happen you know in in honolulu our mayor unbelievably had a press conference two days ago where he said that he is going to mandate that we have to wear masks this was after he mandated that we'd have a curfew then he lifted that mandate because it's bizarre that you can't yeah, I heard, I, the virus only spreads in the, in the daylight <laughs> yeah the, the you know think if you're a single mom who has, you know has teenage kids and you put your kids to bed and you just need to go out of the house for a ride or drive or go to your friend's house or your boyfriend's house. Now that's a crime. I mean, really, that the few people that are on the road at two in the morning, 
They're the ones spreading coronavirus or like the surfer they arrested. It's these sort of like arbitrary flexing. But listen to what our mayor said. He was asked, well, how are you going to enforce it? And I think between the lines, it was like, you know, really, do you have the authority to mandate people wear masks? And instead of him saying, well, I'm just highly encouraging people to do this and businesses to do this. You know, you can, people can do what they want. No. He said, I hope there'll be mob justice. He used the word mob <laughs> justice. So, I, I'm sure he just missed critical comments, but that was a terrible thing to say. <laughs> well, you know, think if you have a people whipped into a hysteria, and let's say I have asthma, and you're not supposed to wear a scarf or a mask if you have asthma, are there going to be people with disabilities now suffering mob justice? Really? Yeah. Is, is this what we want? Well, and then people like me who are rebellious who would have worn his mask, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get a letter from my lawyer. I'm going to grocery store. When they stop me, I'm handing them the letter. And if someone wants to give me mob justice, I'll give him one man justice. And, uh, you know, why are you creating dissent and division in our community and inciting people to, to really violence? Because they're going to be afraid. They're going to think this person's going to kill me. And maybe they were a firefighter like my grandfather and lost a lung, have one lung, have trouble breathing, and they're not going to be wearing a mask or a scarf as they're recommended not right. to. And now they're All going right. to have the whole grocery store bearing down on this person. I'm going to get back to the government official, but I just have to say, Jason, listen, now, um, the reason to wear a mask is not that you're afraid for yourself because it's probably not going to provide much protection against the coronavirus. But if everyone wears masks, then we protect each other from limiting the ve vectors of transmission. So I'm going to say that I understand that impulse. And, you know, Austin Ruse, who's a friend of mine, we're really, you know, I have loggerheads, but I love the guy. He's like, I'm not going to wear a mask. And I'm like, you know, I, I published in my own Facebook that, uh, something that came across my Twitter feed from a woman who said, I was standing in a grocery store and the woman behind me was saying loud enough for me to hear, don't you know a mask is not going to protect you? And she turned around and she said, I'm an off-duty nurse and I'm wearing, wearing this mask to protect you, honey. But if you want it, I can take it off. And she said the woman practically ran. You wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, I know. Net, net. It's all, particularly now Hawaii is a different place, but anytime you're in a crowd, it's potentially crowded space, even though it only prevents, say, 20% of the transmission, that's not good enough for a healthcare worker, but you've just made it much harder for the virus to survive in that environment. So I think that if it's simple and not that hard, those are the things that we shouldn't let our politicians screw up our public health by their incompetence and their... Um, uh, what do you want to call it? Strategic verbal aggression. I've declared a fact. I'm fasting from <sighs> criticizing most public officials because I, I see they all have a kind of difficult job and they're all making momentous decisions and they don't have enough information. And they, uh, and you know, I was watching Andrew Cuomo, who I'll never vote for, but I, he's in the middle and he believes that he needs 40,000 ventilators and he doesn't know what to get them and his brother has the coronavirus. And I'm like, okay, there's a lot of things you can criticize, but I'm just not going to do it. My one exception is Mayor de Blasio, 
it's just been so insufferable from start to finish that I cannot and I cannot agree with you more. And that was an outrageous comment. Now, of course, we do have a constitution, so he's not, he doesn't have the power to do that. But talk about inflaming. And his comments about Samaritan's Purse, outrageous. I mean, really, man, we, we've forgotten how to come together in a crisis. But uh, the, the other thing I would agree at, that, that labeling religious services non-essential was inflammatory. And they should have paused and thought of another way to explain we're discouraging, you know, uh, events for a, a limited period while we figure out how religious services can safely resume and offer advice. You could have done it a lot better, and you should not have just lumped them in. And I know everyone's like, why can you get pot, but you can't go to church? And that's because the government has decided pot is medicinal in value now in most states. That's how you get it. So anyway, so I agree with you that many of our public officials are making things worse rather than better. But I also have to say, I see public officials, you know, the California and Washington State, both run by Democrats. Of whom I, for whom I would never vote, seem to have done a much better job at uh, handling this than, say, Governor Cuomo. And Governor uh, DeWine has stepped forward, and he refused to shut down religious services, but it did instead ask pastors to observe social distancing and limits on congregation sizes. I think it's hard for Catholic churches. One of the things I don't know, uh, um, another friend of mine was saying, that they could just, Catholic bishops just allow 10 people to attend public masses. And she goes to a traditional Latin mass that usually has only 10 people at it. So she's like, no, I can get my mass. And I was sitting around going, okay, so here's how I think about this. I'm in Northern Virginia. Bishop Burbridge is a very good man. He's a very faithful Catholic. He's very smart. He's very competent. Why didn't he do that? And then I started like trying to put myself in his shoes. And I said, well, okay, like, do we really want headlines and images of people locked out of masses, like 10 get in and the rest stand outside going, oh, I'm hungry for the Lord. Why won't you let me in? Or, you know, uh, and, and, and can you even hold a public mass and turn away the faithful? Is that even legal under canon law? I don't know. But I, so that's what I mean when I think that every, and I know that the bishops have a lot in their hands. They have. Um, you know, that we're not a well-oiled machine where the bishop snaps out a directive and things happen. And Catholic Charities in most places, certainly in San Francisco, where I know best, is just at the front line of trying to protect the most vulnerable people. So well, I, that, my uh, attitude is, and we should at least at first have as many people as much slack as we possibly can. Well, and Maggie, I'm with you on that. Listen, I, I launched, I don't know if you know this, I inadvertently launched the Film Your Hospital movement. Did you know that? I, no. went, I went to get tested, and it turned out to be like a movie set. And they wouldn't test me. I had been exposed. I had met four criteria of the five. Each one should get you a test. This was a month ago. And I just made a wow. FaceTime Live that then someone, a friend snipped up, put on YouTube. It went viral. And I was concerned. I just wanted to keep people safe. I had a sore throat and a cough. I came back from the mainland. I was in nine cities in 13 days. I had met with somebody from our circle that had been exposed to COVID-19. I had self-quarantined. I, I, I think most people are responsible. And I said this from the beginning. I don't want to 
this was like the wind. You know, you, you, you can't, I don't expect Trump to stop the wind, Cuomo or de Blasio to stop the wind. And I know, I, I, don't, I don't actually believe that most people are having a common good in, in their best interest. I think there are a lot of people ideologically driven. Um, yeah. And I hate to say that. For example, de Blasio, clearly, because, and Cuomo, it, you know, when Cuomo said, it doesn't take a lot of empathy to understand that private hospital providers are obsessed with the care for their community their community, that they have affinity to, that they're from, right? So if Cuomo would have come out and said, I am asking the medical professionals, the hospital managers of all the hospitals of New York to work together to make sure they're prepared for any expected needs in their community while helping New York City deal with the the overwhelming uh, demand for ventilators now. Figure that out, guys. I'm trusting in you. That to me seems very thoughtful and sensible, but the ham-fisted, I'm coming for your ventilators with young boys and guns. If you don't like it, sue me. You know, that is, I think, what's creating in the Christ- in Christians and conservatives sort of this idea that I have. Like, not only do we have to protect our elderly and our immune-compromised, we also have to defend our way of life. Because I do feel like there is a complete power grab. And we won't see, like... They're saying, and, and this this is the new normal. They're running commercials. This is the new normal. So you can see why Christians yeah. are concerned. Well, what do you mean this is the new normal? We're never going to shake hands again. You, there'll maybe never be mass gatherings again. That kind of rhetoric a, is foolish, and it's not true, and it will lead to political unrest. And then we're seeing in the Philippines and in India people being brutalized, in China, people being disappeared. We want to be the bright city on the hill, right? Showing the, 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 our concern for civil rights and human dignity. I was so impressed with Roger Severino's statement to the hospitals. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah, that's important. That you triage, if necessary, discrimination never. Yes. Yeah, so for those of you listening uh, uh, from the Department of Justice, Roger Severino issued a statement that they would prosecute any discrimination towards the elderly or immune compromised for the use of ventilators and in Italy and other parts of the world. And you might want to talk about that, Maggie. It's the opposite, right? So they privilege the healthy and the young over the elderly and the sick, which goes against triage. Well, triage means that if a resource is scarce, you give it to the one that's most likely to help. And, uh, you know, what, what was most disturbing is the jurisdictions that were beginning to consider quality of life, which meant, uh, you know, people with Down syndrome or the cognitively impaired would be denied uh, resources. And that, to me, is just, that's just legalized murder. And I, by the way, I hear, I, you know, I only know what I read in the news and I keep remembering that it may not all be true that Sweden, which has decided to do only a limited lockdown, and by the way, is still taking a pretty big economic hit, is now uh, establishing regulations that if you're over 80 or over 60 with one a chronic health condition, you will not be admitted to the ICU. So, so much for national health insurance, I guess, as the solutions in this crisis, which is another example of just ideological responses I, I do understand it's hard to think in the middle of a panic. So people just revert to whatever they were thinking before the panic. 
that's um so it's that's a, yeah our uh, often our natural position is self-preservation and self-interest so i'm gonna uh, one last question i want to throw at you how should we as christians okay. behave after the pandemic well theoretically the same way which is we as i said what what the great classic christian response to plagues and pestilences is to share to serve to sacrifice and to pray and uh, if we can't do those things we should at least try not to add to anyone's trouble and look for smaller ways that we can in our limited spheres not be saints but at least be decent people to those around us yeah so we should maybe be decent in and maybe gaming this so this never happens again. There are never the elderly and the sick that have to die alone. There are never the elderly and the sick that, that have to die without last rites. Let's figure this out so that this situation never happens again and we have assist systems in place that keep our priests safe. Now, I know the other point I wanted to make, Maggie, is we're the church, right? So all these people who are demanding the bishops do things, because of liability, we're Catholic. Subsidiarity is very important. In Hawaii, a group of Catholics started something called the Kapuna Project to care for our elderly and homebound. And since the lockdown, over 5,000 two-week supplies of food have been delivered by volunteers. All the food uh, and has been purchased with donated money, all the gas cards for the volunteers. They all have masks. And, you know, I wouldn't expect when this project was being put together and people were talking about the diocese, I said, guys, the diocese has liability issues. Let's just, you know, you guys should just do it. And they said, yeah, let's just do yeah, it. Yeah, ahead. you know, let's just do it. So if you're, if you are upset at the bishops for doing something that you as a lay Catholic should do, you, you know, like you can't do last rites, you can't do confession, but you can deliver food to the homebound or what I do, which is the most tiring. And it, I don't want anyone that I, I call it, hear this. I don't mean it, it, it a per, but the most tiring part of this whole lockdown for me is my disciplined phone calls a couple hours a day to my friends who are homebound and older and living alone. It's just part of my apostolate, part of being a friend. I made a list, and it's a big list. It's a big part of every day. You can do little things like that, right? Um, if you Yeah, no, I've heard that. And you can look to see who you in your network you know that needs help and just deliver it. And, um, you know, I hear I've been talking to priests who are organizing their parishes as families too. And so if they have a school, they're asking the school children to call and check in on the elderly parishioners. Um, there's a neighborhood in uh, Louisiana where the kids organized, the, it was the priests organized it, but the kids did a, an outdoor stations of the cross where they each, you know, 12 houses took the, I mean, the, the each house took one of the stations of the cross and put it up and then the kids rode on their bikes from station of the cross to station of the cross. So yeah, I think if we um, end the, I just, I guess, this is another thing that we really share. When I hear somebody saying that somebody else should do X, I just start going to, well, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because, you, you know, if you can't make someone else do anything, but you are in control of what you do and how you respond. And uh, I don't know many of the people sending around St. Charles Borromeo means who are cashing in their IRAs and giving them to help the homeless. Nor am, I, nor am I going to do that. So I'm not criticizing them, but it's just like other people. Be thanks for me. It's, it's not a good look. It's, you know, <laughs> let's, let's all focus on what we can do to make a difference. 
And of course, there's a political dimension. Eventually, we're going to have elections, and people are going to have to decide who they trust to carry us through the next phase. Yeah, and we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant in defending our civil liberties. Our civil liberties are what have kept us safe, peaceful, and prosperous. We need to be thoughtful for the elderly. And maybe our politicians, if you're listening, stop using inflammatory language that is inevitably going to get a segment of the population to resist you. And I just know Americans are decent and good and thoughtful, and nobody wants to hurt anybody. And, um, you know, we're... We're a beautiful people. People all over the world are thoughtful. No one wants to hurt the elderly or the sick. Or, And my big concern is it's going to be a big topic of the Jason Jones Show in the coming weeks is the impact on the global food supply chain and the coming food shortages, especially in the Horn of Africa in the next 90 to 120 days and what we as a global community and as a church, what we should be doing to prepare for the needs of the most vulnerable people in the world we're going to be yeah. Im- impacted in a mortal way by this, by this economic shutdown. It's not a zero-sum game. Keep the economy closed. Save lives. Uh, there are a lot of things we need to think about. And primarily in the Horn of Africa, when people in the fall start hearing a famine, we can't pretend we didn't, we could not have understood that this famine uh, was, was, was uh, very but, likely. Um, yeah, I don't want to say yeah. inevitable because we need to stop it. But right now it feels like it's inevitable. But Maggie... Yeah. I want to thank, thank you, you for coming on and reminding us. And I just I want, want to uh, go ahead. I want to say one more thing to you, Jason. Yes. Remember, if you wear a mask as a manly man, you will be protecting others, but not yourself. So, you know, I found a way to wear my mask and be a rebel all at the same time. Uh, yeah, you got to find a way. Find another symbol. No, I found a way. Symbol. No, I found a way to protect other people and still be obnoxious. Can I tell you what it is? Oh, yeah, please. They forbid wearing N95 masks. Well, do you know I had I had a stockpile of 100-some masks. We donated them to – I went around kind of selfishly to the restaurants that I go to, the grocery stores I go to, and I, I gave them to all those folks. I said, I'm not going to give it to the hospitals. I'm going to give them to the Micronesian immigrants working at McDonald's and the Uber drivers and – you know, no one's thinking about them, and they may be more exposed than really our medical professionals right now. Also, they'll treat me special when I go there for the rest of my life. So that was my selfish motive. <laughs> so when I go to the grocery store, that's the guy that gave us masks. That's, that's going to be forever. And I kept one mask for myself to wear when I was delivering food for people. So, of mm. course, I'm not going to donate a used mask, but yet I'm not allowed to wear an N95 mask out in public but I'm going to wear an N95 mask out in public so I can break the law and protect people all at the same time. I like it. And you can put live free or die on the cheek. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. Well, and I want to sum up your argument. Christians should drink coffee and booze. Repeat. Watch (laughs) Netflix, but not the two popes. Anything but it, but the two popes. That was what I got from this whole interview. Is that right? Is that all right? Well, that shows you that Jason is a superb listener, and that's why we. (laughs) All right, Maggie. Thank you for living a life uh, to protect the free institutions of our civil society and the building blocks of our community and our culture and our families. And you are a real American hero, and it was a privilege to have you on the Jason Jones Show. And you introduced me to one of my heroes. One of my biggest heroes, which was unbelievable. Can I t- can I just throw name drop real quick? Sure, sure. 
So you and I were at a uh, at the Napa. We were in a Napa Valley at a winery, and we were drinking wine at this gathering, and we were talking about a book or something. And I said somebody needs to gather. Oh, we were talking to a publisher, the writings of Gil Bailey, and publish them. Everything he's ever written needs to be collected and and and, and put into book form and published. And, and what you actually said is, we were actually talking about. Um, who you would like to meet that you've never met. Like who is like, that's, that's what I remember. Yes. You were like, and we were sitting down and he's like, you know, the one person I've never met that I would just love to meet, I'd give anything to meet is this guy, Gil Bailey. Yes. And I said, you know, he lives not very far from here. Would you like me to call him and see if he'd come over? <laughs> and he came over. Fun. It was really, and I never really got kept in touch with him well, because what happened was, we met with him that day. It was like a dream come true because Gil Bailey, and I'm listening, somebody is publishing all his old lectures on Audible, and I buy them all. I can't wait. Like, And, and some of them are very long. I just finished his one on Luke, which was just like 20. It was long. And, uh, and he's just this beautiful, gentle soul. You may not know this. So we, had, we spent, him and I talked. Then about, I actually had to break our conversation up because the man who raised me, my stepfather, I got a call. He was battling cancer, was in an oncology ward, got the flu, and he was dying. Got turned into pneumonia. And so just later that night, right after that conversation, my wife and I rushed to the hospital. I mean, rushed to the airport, flew to uh, Indiana, and I got to spend the last seven days with my pop just praying the rosary. And I sort of just really didn't stay, didn't do a good job of following up and thanking him. But I just want to thank you. Uh, for making that possible. That's was just really, really unbelievable. And that's what happened. I had said to the publisher, Gil Bailey's writing should be gathered. And and then I, and I, had, and they said, do you know him? And I said, no, but he's like the one person I haven't met in the world that I would really like to meet. And then you had him there within an hour. It was unbelievable. That was fun. That well, was fun. Well, next year in Napa. Yeah. Next year in Napa, we're going to definitely uh, spend some time with Gil Bailey. I, um, I'm just so, and you, and uh, my wife said she's coming with me every year to that event. She was really impressed. It's a lot of fun. All right, Maggie, anything you're promoting or pushing that you want to share with folks right now? Uh, well, if you want to join me and Archbishop Cordelione on our, our mission of evangelizing through sacred beauty, go to benedictinstitute.org and you can subscribe to our newsletter and find out. We've got a whole bunch of, I've just been figuring out what an event-based organization is going to be able to do in the next six months. Since, you know, like our big thing that we did in most recently is we just jammed uh, the Basilica to Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception in D.C. with 3,500 people to attend a solemn high pontifical mass, a new one written by our composer and resident, Frank LaRocca. And that uh, went viral over the, the EWTN broadcasted, but it also went viral over the um, Shrine's website. And more than 117,000 people have seen that mass. And it, Frank LaRock is just a great composer. Anyway, we, we're not sure that any time in the next year people are going to think it's a good idea to get 3,500 people in a room together. Um, and so I've, I've, been coming, I've, been, I've been exploring Zoom. Uh, I'm a late adopter of most technology, and I think we've just come up with some incredible things that people can do. 
And if your listeners are like me, a late adopter, the advantage of Zoom is it's not just like live streaming where you, you know, you watch something and you're on your computer or your TV. It's more like being in a room together. And um, we we did we launched with doing uh, litanies to the Sacred Heart of Jesus with a beautiful cantor who's one of our B16 solo singers. And, uh, you know, people really liked it. And I think people are hungry to do something meaningful and to do it together as Catholics or as Christians. And that hunger is only being uh, intensified. So go to benedictinstitute.org and subscribe. Yeah, Benedict the 16th Institute. Your emails are the most... No, 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 no. no. Benedictinstitute.org. I'm sorry. Benedict 16th Institute was taken. So I'm sorry. Benedictinstitute.org. Sorry. No, that's okay. What I wanted to say about the Benedict Institute is your emails, I get all your emails, they're the most attractive events. I have several times tried to buy flights to go to your events, but I've been pre-booked or had other uh, obligations. So I've literally several times was willing to fly across the ocean uh, to go go to your events. And I have a a suggested event that you guys can do right now. You need to do with Gil Bailey, COVID-19 and mimetic rivalry from the competition for masks, toilet paper, the competition for the, the right to assemble. The governor says, don't assemble. Next thing you know, people are assembling. I see so much of Gerard's teachings, uh, which uh, Gil Bailey's built upon and explained so well, in sort of the, the sort of mindlessness of the whole crisis. And I think that would be very interesting to people. And I wouldn't have to fly across the ocean now. I'd, I'd get to log into Zoom. Yeah, well, you know, I think you're right. We should do something with Gil. That's a great suggestion. And, you know, that Rene Gerard seminar was really that we did was really an amazing event. We did Rene Girard and the Catholic artist. And then afterwards, see if you came. So we do the public event. And then we host a private dinner salon with the archbishop afterwards. That's our basic model. So that's just even more incentive. So the the public events are great. And then the dinner parties afterwards are really amazing. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, right. you know, give your website. I can talk to you forever. I need to let you go. So give the website one more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said I'd only give you a half an hour, but I think I'm just droning on and on. Benedictinstitute.org. And thanks, Jason. Thank you, Maggie Gallagher. Hey, guys, I thanks for joining the show. Guys, I cannot encourage you enough to go to the website. Their events are amazing. That Rene Girard and the Artist event, I tried to move my whole, rearrange my whole schedule to go to. I was heartbroken like a kid who didn't get a Christmas when I didn't get to go to that event. Um, they're all of their events. They're the most attractive events to me. Every one of them is really intriguing and interesting. So go sign up at the website. I'm going to put it in the show notes. All right. This has been another episode of the Jason Jones show with the one and only Maggie Gallagher. This episode has been brought to you by movie to movement, promoting a culture of life, love and beauty through the power of film. Go to movietomovement.com and see our upcoming movie, Divided Hearts of America, starring Benjamin Watson, coming to you this year. We don't know, is it going to be in theaters or somewhere else? But go to the website, sign up, so we can keep you up to date. Until tomorrow, aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Thank you.